Hi, hi, hello guys. I'm Rui, and this is Macabre Ramblings, a true crime full ramble. And it's D.B. Cooper, part 2. And so, now that another week has passed, and now it's time to talk about more about D.B. Cooper, but not what he has done, because we're done with that now. It's about the suspects and the recover of some of the money that was missing. Uh-huh. So I'm just diving right in, because... There's nothing else that I'm going to, t to talk about before the topic itself. So just gonna dive right in. So on February 10, 1980, an 8-year-old named Brian Ingram, he was vacationing with his family by the Columbia River and it's a at a beachfront known as Tina Bar. Some sources say Tena. T-E-N-A or T-I-N-A. It's basically like a bar <laughs> in the beach. And it's about 9 miles or 14 kilometers downstream from Vancouver, Washington. And this is 20 miles or 32 kilometers southwest of Ariel. So while he was there, he was planning to build a campfire. So he was, I think, digging, raking through the sand through the sandy riverbank so he could build his campfire. You know, just these eight-year-old stuff. What they want, just playing with the sand, doing some stuff by the beachfront. And that's when he uncovered three packets of cash just, just there, buried under the sand. So the bills, they were disintegrated a little bit, but they were still bundled up in rubber bands and all of these money amounted to around $5,800 worth of $20 Federal Reserve notes. So I suppose uh, Brian went to his family and said that, hey, I found these cash. What am I gonna do with all of this cash? I guess the, the family kind of like had the idea or something. Anyway, what had whatever happened, the family gave the money to the FBI, and the FBI then confirmed that this money that was found, it was a portion, just a portion, not all of it, but it was a portion of the ransom money demanded by D.B. Cooper. So there's two packets of $120 bills each, and there's a third packet of 90 so there are like, I suppose, 10 bills missing in that third packet. And it was all arranged in the same order when it was given to Cooper. Since there's money found by the beach, the FBI brought in a team of agents to comb through the beach even more. Maybe they could find the rest of the cash, you know? But 
only small fragments of cash were found and I take that as pieces. Maybe they were disintegrated that they just fell apart and they were buried under the sand as a result. So yeah, so during that time, there's an associate professor of geology at Portland State University named Dr. Leonard Palmer and he was brought in to determine how the money got there and how it was buried under the sand. And this resulted to what I guess the FBI called or the people called the Palmer Report. So while Dr. Leonard was examining the area where the money was discovered, he then dug an exploration trench from the waterline water line and this is kind of like standard procedure so he could see the geology so he could understand the layers in the sand and map how the deposits came about the deposition depositional history of the sand in the beach so he could know so he found several distinctive sand layers and several feet down he found this clay layer and this was were all below the level of the money. So the doctor interpreted that this clay layer was deposited by a dredging operation in 1974. And in this dredging operation dumped tons of sand on Tina Bar. And that's why the doctor thought that, oh, maybe it got buried by all of this sand that was dumped into this and these factors all influence the interpretation of the money find so this theory is also called the washugal washdown theory and this theory states that the money took around several years to travel by natural processes maybe it was taken by the river the water maybe it got blown whatever it is the nature was responsible for this. It got washed down and then it was buried sometime after the dredging that deposited this clay layer. So that is what the doctor thought of how the money got there. He thought that it's nature that brought the money there. But then the Cooper research team, you know, the team with uh, I talked about on part one, with a lot of analysts, doctors, scientists, just a group of citizen sleuths that likes to look into this Cooper case. So they went there in March of 2009 and they found that the beach had undergone this severe erosion. So the level of the beach was now several feet below the original level or I suppose when the money was found, it was now several feet below this. The dredging made Dr. Palmer misinterpret that the clay was man-made, but it was actually a natural part of the beach stratigraphy. 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 My god, what is this word? <laughs> so, Palmer was working with limited information back then, because he does not know, or I suppose nobody really noticed that the erosion and the clay layers are natural at the time when he went, you know, looking through the beach. So this discovery that 
Dr. Dr. Palmer misinterpreted this, launched several new rounds of theories, conjecture, and raised even more questions like, if this is natural, I mean, how did the money get there in the first place? So the initial statements by investigators and scientific consultants were founded on the assumption that the bills were washed freely, you know, the washable washdown theory. But this kind of like shows that maybe it's something else. So the Army Corps of Engineers, Engineers Hydrologists, they looked at the bills and they noted that the disintegration of the bills are in this rounded fashion and they were, were and they were matted together, indicating that they had been deposited by river action as opposed to having been deliberately buried. So okay. The washdown theory kind of like works with that. However, this free-floating hypothesis has its own difficulties as well because it did not explain the 10 bills missing from the one packet because 100 bills, 100 bills, and then 90. Where did the 10 go? There was also no logical reason how the three packets could have remained together. Where's the rest of the money then? You know, they could not think of like a theory on how this just bundles of money got away. Where is the rest? So the physical evidence is apparently incompatible with geologic evidence. So Himmelsbach, a former FBI agent, was supporting the washing up theory. And he said that the free-floating bundles would have had to wash up in the bank, quote-unquote, within a couple of years of the hijacking. But if that did happen, the rubber bands would have disintegrated. It would have been deteriorated. It's not. It's still intact when the money was found. Because in late 2020, there, the analysis... The analysis of diatoms found on the bills suggests that the bundles found at Tinnabar were not submerged in the river or buried dry at the time of the hijacking in November 1971. So, okay, it at that time, it was not buried at that point. So I suppose later then? So only diatoms that bloom during springtime are found, placing the date range that the money entered the water at least several months after the hijacking so several months the three bundles of 20 dollar bills that were found were the only evidence ever found after the hijacking there's no parachutes there's no corpse there's no db cooper and the explanation the simplest explanation on how the bills were there will require that the original flight path that was surmised was off by many miles the jump timing that they would have thought is off as well and the pilots were wrong as well it this is not thought of as the place where the money or db cooper would have landed on and there is currently no good data indicating that the flight path and timing of cooper's jump were off enough to have him landing on or near tina bar so the rubber band testing, because they tested the rubber band as well, ju- not just the money. And it this is the weirdest part, actually, because they tested the rubber band and 
The research places this constraint of only about one year for the bills to become buried in Tina Bar. So, what in the world has happened? Because this places further restrictions on how the bills got there. Because one year is just the constraint. More than that, it is supposed to. And I suppose the rubber bands wouldn't look as good as they did when they were found. If natural means provides no plausible answer, people think maybe mechanical, but that is also pretty problematic. So since Cooper's body was never found, nobody knows where he, if he was alive, where did he go? If he died, where did he land? People think that the mystery of how the bells got there is kind of like almost as much of a mystery as D.B. Cooper. Because <laughs> it was, it's so weird. How did the money get there? Why is it buried there? The rubber band and all of that stuff. So it's just weird. So in 1986, after some negotiations, the recovered bills were divided equally between Ingram, Brian Ingram, and Northwest Orient's insurer. And the FBI also got around 14 examples as evidence. So Ingram kept the partial notes and fragments for decades in pages of photo albums. And in March 2008, Ingram, he has 83 partial notes and fragments. He sold 15 in June 12 to 13, 2008 in the heritage auction sale for about $37,000. So to date, none of the 9,710 remaining bills have turned up anywhere, but their serial numbers still remain available online or public search. And that's what happened to the ransom money, or at least some of it. <laughs> Where's the rest? Nobody knows. As of yet, I don't know if people would know if anybody would ever know where it is, because the case is cold for like, Four decades already, four or five. It's been so long. So yeah, now that the talk about the ransom money have been done, let's talk about the notable suspects. And there's a lot. I try to limit myself in researching because every single person, or almost every single person, has this rabbit hole that I could just fall down on. And I don't want to fall down too deep, because. This episode is going to be eight hours long, and that's not what I want. <laughs> that's, I'm. Oh my god, the editing would be absolutely horrible. Or just, I'm going to put myself in a lot of tiredness. <laughs> so I try to limit myself when it comes to uh, researching these people, but I might cover some of them in the future if I feel like it. So the first notable suspect is Kenneth Peter Christensen. So he is a suspect because of his brother, I suppose. Yes, his brother. So in 2003, Lyle Christensen was watching this television documentary about the hijacking. And while he was watching that, he became convinced that Kenneth... His late brother, so he died on 1994, he became convinced that his brother was Cooper. Because he was so convinced, he contacted the FBI 
several times. So a copy of one of his letters written in, in, in November 2003 went like this, quote, Dear good people, here's the story of how I began to suspect my brother was D.B. Cooper. Uh, so he told them that he was watching TV, flipped on the show Unsolved Mysteries, and this is where he watched the episode, and then he wrote, quote, I sat up in my chair because my brother was a dead ringer to the composite sketch of DB. There were so many circumstances that I became convinced my brother was truly DB Cooper. End quote. <laughs> so this contact to the FBI did not work. I suppose he did not get any uh, reply back. And so after about a lot of futile attempts, he went to an author and film director Nora Ephron and he believed that the director would make a movie <laughs> about this case but I suppose it did not work out as well so he contacted a private investigator in New York City in 2010 the name of the detective is Kip Porteous he ended up publishing a book postulating that Kenneth Christensen was the hijacker. So Skip actually was amazed on this like letter that was sent to him by Lyle. He couldn't believe that he got a scoop on who D.B. Cooper is. So he replied back to Lyle and he said that this is potentially a very hot story. So he wanted the facts, basic stuff about Kenneth full name, age, social address, and Lyle wrote back later that night. So Lyle also gave him a few photos and documents in the mail, and he began to tell Skip about his family, that they grew up on a farm with cows and pigs and tractors and chickens. And this is when the Great Depression was happening, that in high school, Kenneth was at the top of his class, and he had 12 private colleges to pick from but at the moment at that time the war was on and in 1944 he decided to enlist so Kenneth thought of the Air Force first but he eventually decided on the army and he chose a specialty apparently it's an elite dangerous but better paying specialty the paratroops so Lyle said that Kenneth Kenny his brother was always looking for ways to make a buck because I suppose they grew up in the Great Depression so he knows how hard it is to have no money so he wants to earn as much money as he can. So at that time, the quality of the parachutes was primitive. You could not steer them out of the way of power lines or trees and all of that. That could like put a factor on why D.B. Cooper picked the older parachutes? I don't know. Working on the theory that Kenneth is indeed the hijacker. So back then, I guess after the war, based in Minneapolis, he got into this work when he found like a job looking to hire technicians to work on planes in Shemia. And this is an island in the Aleutians. So Kenneth started as a mechanic and he was hired in 1956 as a flight attendant. He then relocated to Southwest Washington and he was promoted as a purser. So this meant that he has 50 
$5 extra monthly pay, and dealing with customs and immigration agents and managing the plane's money. So according to property records, Kenneth was able to purchase a house and some land in October 1972, about a year after the hijacking. Kenneth paid $14,000 for a modest modest ranch in Bonnie Lake. This is a small mountain town. A year later, there's a deed that shows that he paid $1,500 for a parcel of land. So, I suppose a weak proof that he suddenly has money, you know, this amount of money, it's not as much as $200,000, but it's still a lot of money. So, Harry Honda, a Northwest purser who worked with Kenneth, said that Kenneth is that type of person that was almost invisible. He said, quote, if you ask somebody on the plane who was the purser on that flight, they couldn't tell you. That's how quiet this guy was. End quote. And when they had a layover, Kenneth, I guess suppose he does not socialize a lot. He would not go out with the staff. He was non-communicative. And he kept himself. And there's someone that said, quote, You ask people and say, Ken Christensen. They say, Who? <laughs> And I don't know, I just felt bad. It's hard to be that invisible, I suppose. Or I guess he might like that? I don't know. Some people said that he kind of looks like a farmer. He likes to wear denim overalls and a railroad cap. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know how this is important to how he is as a suspect, but I took note of it. I took note of it. So... Some people just could not believe that he could be D.B. Cooper. He, one person said Rose Edmiston, a flight attendant, said that he is probably the last person in the world that she would think is D.B. Cooper. And he is also very kind to some younger men, not in a creepy way, but he was taking in troubled kids, runaways, and helped them, you know? So he's that type of, like, good Samaritan type of person. But then, looking back, Kenneth went to Japan or Germany, and when he came back from there, there were always gifts. Expensive food, big bottles of aged sake, ceramic dolls, and Kenneth doesn't look like he is holding back financially and he doesn't he always like treats people they always ate out and he'd always call it my turn and then he's going to pay for the food and it looks like he has a lot of money and mcwilliams i suppose a younger man that kenneth helped he thinks that it's a little possible that kenneth was db cooper because there was always a little bit of cash Maybe a little bit in his dresser, also in his wallet. And he said that as a steward, they made good money, but they didn't make that much money. Because Northwest's salaries back then, I don't know now, but they were notoriously meager. For pursers, who Kenneth was, it was around $212 a month and all that you can carry. This meant like, I don't know, getting the toilet paper from the bathrooms of the airplane to supplement their paycheck. And uh, female flight attendants were actually forced to strict 
intercompany mandates like weight checks. They also couldn't wear glasses or have their own rooms during layovers, but men could. Fuck. Uh, <laughs> misogynistic. So, and all of this created this atmosphere of hostility towards Northwest's. Northwest and workers would strike. Workers would sue. And Kenneth is not the type to be vocal in his rage, but he always like just sit in the back or not go at all when it comes to meetings and all of that. But Kenneth apparently hated the strikes because it meant that he had to find more work, some picking apples in a farm or some of like that. And he built up a little hatred for the company, for laying people off and forcing them to go on strike. So according to Kenneth's Kenny bleh, according to Kenneth Oh my god, what's happening to me? According to Kenneth's brother, he thinks Kenneth is the hijacker because he would want to quote unquote suck it to them by pulling off the hijacking. There were some questions like did Kenneth ever make extravagant purchases and Lyle the brother said only his house in the land but did Kenny drink bourbon Kenneth apparently loved bourbon so much he has a collection of bourbon bottles so did Kenneth smoke yes he does gives this he might be DB Cooper kind of vibe but there was no concrete testimony nothing to directly like you know link him to D.B. Cooper. But then, Lyle said that he had this conversation with Kenneth when Kenneth got sick with cancer. And Lyle suspected that the cause was radiation at Bikini Atoll, you know, the place where uh, nuclear explosions were tested on, and he, he was a soldier. So on Kenneth's deathbed, Lyle remembers that Kenneth pulled him close. Kenneth then said something to him that didn't make sense to him back then, but now, as he thinks about it, kinda makes sense. Because Kenneth said to him, quote, There's something you should know, but I cannot tell you, end quote. And instead of asking like, okay, but, but, you know, can you tell me? Lyle just didn't want to know. He said, I don't care what it is you cannot tell me about. We all love you, end quote. And that's just sweet very sweet but at the same time kind of like frustrating because what is it what is something that he should know so one of the only living eyewitnesses to the cooper case is at this time as florence schaffner the first stewardess she was the one who accepted the note and she now lives in lexington south carolina and uh huh. skip the detective talked to her and showed her you know pictures of kenneth and this is just sad because when flo was there florence she calls herself flo that's her nickname her hands were shaking and apparently just thinking about the case makes her very nervous and she was never the same after the hijacking which understandable she took a month off and went to live with her family back in arkansas after the hijacking and she also became paranoid that if cooper was living she feared that he would come after her because she is alive and she has seen his face eliminate the witnesses you know 
and she is so paranoid she looks under her car for bombs and she turn her keys real slow because she doesn't want to explode it's a sad thing to get this much trauma so over the years the fbi has shown florence a lot of pictures of suspects and she has yet to identify any of them to be db cooper so skip showed her the photos of kenneth christensen and when she looked at the passport photo uh she said quote the ears the ears are right yes thin lips and the top lip kind of like this yes a wide forehead yes receding yes the two areas sort of like this but thinking about the hair she said there was more hair though and in the end she said that i think you might be onto something here so that kind of like cements even more to skip and i suppose lyle kenneth's brother that i think we're on the right trail here the picture of kenneth was also was also shown to himmelsbach and he looked at it and he said not bad except for the hair which for me is like i guess you could do something about the hair i don't know so uh skip also showed him kenneth's discharge papers i suppose told him all about kenneth his life what he had done and all of that and as a response himmelsbach said quote if i was still on duty and it were up to me i'd say this guy is a must investigate end quote so christensen was 45 years old at the time of the hijacking which fits you know db cooper's alleged age 40 to 50 but he was shorter he was five feet eight inches and he was also thinner and uh he was lighter thinner and lighter than the eyewitnesses descriptions of cooper so florence told a reporter that photos of christensen fit her memory of the hijacker's appearance more closely than other suspects that she had been shown but she could not conclusively say that yeah that's him so there's a television documentary about skip's skip portius's book it was shown on 2011 but despite the publicity that was generated by that the fbi stands by their position that kenneth cannot be considered a prime suspect suspect so they cited that the poor match to eyewitness physical descriptions and his skydiving expertise was above what they predicted because they predict that db cooper wasn't really that good with the parachutes so his skydiving expertise was higher than what they think and there's this complete absence of direct incriminating evidence Uh uh-huh and that's about it for kenneth peter christensen and now let's go to the second suspect which is bryant jack caulfield he was alive at 1917 to 1975 so he was also dead 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 he was a con man an ex-convict and apparently he was a government informant who claimed that he has the chuff that he was the chuffer and confidant of abraham lincoln's last descendant his great-grandson robert todd lincoln beckwith 
So in 1972, he began claiming that, hey, I'm Cooper. <laughs> and he attempted through an intermediary, a former cellmate named James Brown, to sell his story to a Hollywood production company. And my initial reaction is, oh, oh no, this is a con, isn't it? So Bryant Jack, I'll call him Jack, said that he, le- he landed near Mount Hood which is around 50 miles southeast of Ariel, and he was injured, and he lost the ransom money in the process. His photos do resemble the composite drawings, although in 1971, he was in his mid-50s already, which doesn't match what they thought Cooper's age is, and he was also rep- reportedly in Portland on the day of the hijacking. And he sustained leg injuries around that time though, which were consistent with a skydiving accident. So Caulfield's account was reviewed by the FBI, and they concluded that it is different in several details from the information that had not been made public, and therefore it was fabricated. Uh-huh. Let's talk about Caulfield, because I, I felt that this is kind of like interesting, because he became a chauffeur, and he did. He was a confidant of Abraham Lincoln's great-grandson, Robert Todd Lincoln Beckwith, because he was planning to get his hands on the Lincoln fortune, but then he failed. He then hatched another plan, that he was going to hijack a plane. So this is what Caulfield said, that his plan was to hijack a plane heading from Portland to Seattle. He made certain admissions to his lawyer in Memphis that he was, in fact, D.B. Cooper. And then Lachman, the writer of the book, said that he was able to determine that he did, uh, Caulfield did went, go on a search for the bundle of missing cash in the years after D.B. Cooper jumped out of the plane. Lachman also said that Caulfield also did appear with a limp in the immediate period after D.B. Cooper and he did not have one before that. But even if this case is compelling to some other people's ears, it's kind of hard to uh, have definite proof because Caulfield already died in 1975 and his remains were cremated so no DNA could be gotten from those ashes. So, Inside Edition's Paul Boyd, in an interview with Lachman, asked, In your gut, do you really believe Jack Caulfield is D.B. Cooper? And Lachman said, In my gut, I believe he is. Uh-huh. So that's all about Jack Caulfield. For me, I don't really lean much into it. I don't know, maybe it's because of his con, sta- con background. But yeah. He is a suspect in this case. So the third one is Lynn Doyle Cooper. And he is also called L.D. Cooper. He is a leather worker and Korean War veteran. And he was proposed as a suspect in July 2011 by his niece, Marla Cooper. Because apparently when Marla was 8 years old, she recalled the Cooper incident. And she also recalled that Her uncle and another uncle were planning to do something very mischievous involving the use of expensive walkie-talkies at her grandmother's house in Sisters, Oregon. And this is 150 miles southeast of Portland. So the next day, the hijacking happened. 
And though the uncles were said to be turkey hunting, Aldi Cooper came home wearing a bloody shirt. He said that this came from an auto accident. A car, I suppose. So Marla said that her uncle was wearing a white t-shirt and he was bloody and bruised and a mess and she was absolutely horrified and she began to cry. So her other uncle, who was with LD, said to Marla that she should just shut up and get her dad. And that incident convinced her that now, in the future, this kind of like memory convinces her that there was no car accident at all, but that her uncle's injury was caused by him crashing to earth in a parachute. And she says that she also remembers a discussion about money that day. She said, quote, I heard my uncle say, we did it. We did it. Our money problems are over. We hijacked an airplane. End quote. But then there was no money. Apparently, it was dropped. It was lost. The hijacker lost much of the cash when he came crashing down. And that's why some of the hijacking money was recovered, but the others aren't. So Marla said that her two uncles wanted to return to search for the cash, but her father had refused. She believes this was because the FBI was searching, and she doesn't want or her father doesn't want the uncles to get caught. So after that Thanksgiving day, she never saw her uncle again, and she she was told that he died in 1999. So later, Marla said her parents came to believe that L.D. Cooper was definitely the hijacker, and she also recalled that her uncle was obsessed with this Canadian comic book hero, Dan Cooper. And if you have listened to part one, you know what that is. And he also had this comic books thumbtacked to his wall so he really really loves the comic although ld cooper was not a skydiver or a paratrooper so he's an amateur which kind of like fits with what the fbi thinks db cooper is so in august 2011 new york magazine published this alternative witness sketch and this is reportedly based on a description by flight 305 eyewitness Robert Gregory and in this sketch D.B. Cooper has horn-rimmed sunglasses, a russet colored suit jacket with white lapels and marshaled hair and L.D. Cooper has that hair but uh, after I suppose the FBI contacted Marla about this and she gave the FBI a guitar strap made by L.D. Cooper, but they were not able to get any fingerprints from that. But one week later, they said that, I suppose they got another thing to get some fingerprints from. But after that, one week later, they said that L.D. Cooper's DNA did not match the partial DNA profile obtained from the tie, the clip-on tie, but acknowledged that this is kind of like not a certainty because the tie itself is debated. It's debatable. Nobody really knows if this is D.P. Cooper's or not. Is the tie even something reliable or not? There's a writer named Joffrey Gray and he is skeptical. Well, about this, he actually, I suppose, has a lot of D.P. Cooper books. And he said, quote, 
the evidence the FBI uncovered uncovered on the plane, from my sources at least, has proven inconclusive for conclusive testing. And this is what is written on Gray's website for his book, Skyjack, The Hunt for D.B. Cooper. So he, he added, During the three years that I reported on the Cooper case and was given exclusive access to FBI files, I learned I learned through then-case agent Larry Carr that the fingerprints uncovered on the plane that night were virtually useless. End quote. So interesting. Very interesting. Because they did use the DNA from the clip-on tie as some kind of gauge if the, the suspect is D.P. Cooper or not. But if the, it is virtually useless, then what's the point of using this to eliminate suspects? So interesting. So back to Marla Cooper, she showed ABC News a Polaroid picture of her uncle when it was in 1972, and she claims that this picture is eerily similar to the sketch that authorities put out in the 1970s. And she even says that one of the flight attendants that was in the hijacked plane agrees. And she even told ABC News, quote, of all the photos that have been brought to her to her attention over the years, my uncle really looked like him. This sure looks like the guy, is what she said. So according to Marla Cooper, there are two conversations with her parents that initially made her suspicious. So the first was in 1995, and this is with her father just before he died. Condolences. And so her father made a comment about L.D. Cooper. And he said, don't you remember he hijacked that airplane? And at that time, she was unable to process, <laughs> he did what? My uncle did what? But in 2009, in a conversation with her mother, this topic came up again. So her mother made a comment, and this is a similar comment that she had always suspected that her uncle LD was the real D.B. Cooper. So that's interesting. And that's all about that I got for Lynn Doyle Cooper. But that's an interesting thing because her parents are also kind of like into the thought. So what happened there? What happened on that night where the turkey hunting was supposed to be happening? You know, makes me very, very curious. So now let's go to another suspect. And this is a short one. The suspect is Barbara Dayton. And she was a recreational pilot and University of Washington librarian. And she was born as Robert Dayton. This is why she was, she is a girl. And she served in the U.S. Merchant Marine and then the Army during World War II. So after her discharge, she worked with explosives in the construction field. And she wanted to be a professional airline person. A career there, but she could not obtain a commercial pilot's license. So she underwent gender reassignment surgery in 1969, and that's when she got Barbara as her new name. And she claimed that she has staged the Cooper hijacking two years after that, uh, while presenting as a man in order to quote-unquote get back at the airplane industry 
and the FAA who had a lot of rules and conditions that prevented her from becoming an airline pilot. So she also said that the ransom money was hidden in a cistern near Woodburn and this is a suburban area south of Portland. But eventually, she recanted her entire story after learning that hijacking charges could still be brought to her. <laughs> and she also did not match the physical description even remotely close. And the FBI has never commented publicly on Dayton. And she is now dead. She died in 2002. So just one of those people that claims that they are D.P. Cooper when they are not. I suppose they, they just want to be infamous. They just want to have like that fame, something attached to their name. So that's all about Barbara Dayton. There's not much about her. So now let's go to John List. And this is someone that I want to cover in the future. This is a case that I wanted to cover, but I didn't know that he is going to appear here because I never thought that he is linked in the D.B. Cooper list. So, <laughs> his name is John List. John Emil List. He was an accountant and World War II and Korean War veteran. Oh my god, that's, there's a lot in his belt. And he... Uh, this is going to go downhill very fast. He murdered his wife, three teenage children, and 85-year-old mother in Westfield, New Jersey. And this happened 15 days before the hijacking. He withdrew $200,000 from his mother's bank account and then disappeared. Uh-huh. So, this is so sad because before anyone noticed that something bad was happening in the family, it took actual like light bulbs going out in the fall of 1971 before anyone like called the police. So, the Westfield police broke into the 19-room ramshackle victorian mansion goodness that's their house and the police found the mansion cold and if i remember correctly he did make sure that it's going to be cold and there's organ music playing in every room over the intercom system creepy so while going in in the ballroom yes they have a ballroom and this ballroom has a stained glass skylight Yes, oh my god, there are, oh this is gonna be sad again. There are four bodies laid out on sleeping bags beneath the stained glass skylight. And this is Helen List, her teenage children Patricia, Fred, and John Jr. So the grandmother, Alma, is in a storage area in, in her attic apartment. That's just so sad. So, the women and Fred List had each been shot in the head once, but John List Jr., who was then 15, had been shot at least 10 times. Their bodies in the ballroom, they had been there for a month or more. A month? My god. So, there was no mystery as to who had done it, because John List Sr., apparently had announced that they were going on a family trip. He stopped all the paper and milk deliveries, and this is when he killed his entire family. So in a letter that he left in his study for his pastor, he confessed everything in the, let in the letter and in the postscript 
He wrote, Mother is in the hallway in the attic. She was too heavy to move. <sighs> Asshole, even to the end. So, John List, it turns out, he has been terrible with money. And he was also very terrible in holding jobs. So, he owed $11,000 on his mortgage. And he has been getting some money from his mother's bank accounts. I don't know if the mother knows about this or not. So he even wrote, oh my god, this makes me so mad. Quote, at last I'm certain that all have gone to heaven now. If things had gone on, who knows if that would be the case. End quote. Partly he thinks that he has sent his family to a better place by killing them, but he could not follow them, I suppose, to quote-unquote atone for his sins his sins this is also a creepy part of this case because for the police to have nothing to go on like his face what does he look like all photos every family photo in the house that has his face in it he ripped his face out of every single one of those every single one that's creepy and by the time the police had found the bodies John List had already gone for a month. So his car was found parked at Kennedy Airport, though there was no records of him taking a flight anywhere. So he had been missing for about two decades. Aha. Uh -huh. But in 1989, America's Most Wanted took an interest in him. They posted age progression photographs. This is... This technology is still new in the late 1980s. In 1987, the FBI produced a few of his photos, age progression photos, using new computer software. But America's Most Wanted even went further. They commissioned a life-size bust of what John List might look like. This age progression photo, they made a big life-size bust of this. So the artist, Frank Bender, considered a lot of things. So he included the surgical scar behind John List's ear. He kept the oversized horn-rimmed glasses. And the result of this bust appeared on the show in May 1989. So this portrait, it turned out, looks kind of exactly like Robert Clark. He is a quiet, church-going, worried about money, married <sighs> accountant, who has a trouble keeping a job? Familiar? He is now living in a suburb of Richmond. What is VA? Oh no, I don't know states. What's VA? Richmond. <laughs> Just in Richmond. So, a lot of people ended up contacting Westfield, Westfield Police after the broadcast of America's Most Wanted. They received around 300 calls after it. So the call that counted came from a woman in Denver, and this is a former neighbor of Mr. and Mrs. Robert Clark, who had since moved to Brander Mill. And Mr. Clark had the glasses, he had the scar, and as he was investigated, he had the fingerprints. He is John List. So at first, he was adamant that, hey, I'm Robert Clark. What are you talking about? I'm not John List. But he was taken back to New Jersey anyway, and he was convicted of five counts of murder, and he was sentenced in 1990 to five life terms. 
eventually because hey i'm fucked anyway he eventually admitted that yeah i'm john list but he was adamant oh my god this is makes me this makes me so mad he that he said that he killed his family to ensure their places in heaven and he added when he sees them in heaven they would have already forgiven him and he ah uh, ah uh, and he's not going there excuse me sir you're going down 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 so what what is his <laughs> What is his connection to the Cooper case? So he came to the attention of the Cooper task force because of the timing of his disappearance, multiple matches to the description, and the reasoning that a fugitive accused of mass murder has nothing to lose. John List did admit that he murdered his family, but he denied any involvement in the Cooper hijacking case. So, although his name continues to appear in Cooper articles and documentaries, there's no substantial evidence that implicates him at all, and the FBI no longer considers him a suspect. He is now dead. He died in prison in 2008. And it's an interesting case. I kind of really want to cover that maybe in the future so the next uh suspect i don't know how many people have we talked about already one two three four five six so the sixth suspect is ted mayfield that's his nickname his whole name is theodore ernest mayfield he was a special force veteran he's a pilot competitive skydiver and skydiving instructor he served time in 1994 for negligent homicide after two of his students died when their parachutes failed to open so the charges are over the death of an 85 year old man my gosh huh and he died on his first jump and an experienced jumper who died because his chute didn't open so the veteran skydiver Schaefer, 33 years old, he was killed when his parachute failed to open over the Sheridan Airport. He had already made 53 recreational jumps, so he definitely knows what he's doing. And his family said he was a paratrooper in the U.S. Army 82nd Airborne Division. So he really knows what he's doing. So because of this, Mayfield's License was revoked on February 18, 1994, after an investigation to Schaefer's death. The investigators found that Mayfield had packed Schaefer's parachute with an automatic activating device that he knows had failed the last calibration test. So negligence, just absolute, absolute negligence. So about the 85-year-old man, Perry... Federal officials said that although Perry was a novice when he jumped on February 12, 1994, he was given a parachute designed for experienced jumpers. So he doesn't know he's a novice. Freaking negligence, my god. So when he jumped, the static line linking him to the plane failed to open the main chute, and the line that would have automatically opened his emergency chute was missing. Oh my god, that I just imagine like falling and you there's nothing to hold on to. You're just plummeting plummeting down to the ground and my gut just dropped. That's oh my god. That's so terrifying. So later, I suppose after investigations, 
Mayfield was found indirectly responsible for 13 additional skydiving deaths due to faulty equipment and training. He was also arrested but not convicted for armed robbery in his youth. So I guess he does have uh, meetings with the law back then when he was younger. So U.S. District Judge Michael Hogan ordered Mayfield to pay a $2,000 fine. He was placed on three years probation and for was forbidden to operate, construct, or repair aviation equipment. So literally go far away from any aviation and just fuck off. <laughs> Uh huh. But in 2010, he was then sentenced to three years probation because he was found piloting a plane 26 years after he lost his pilot's license. So he was suggested repeatedly as a suspect early in the investigation, according to Ralph Helmsback, and he was ruled out though based on the fact that uh, Mayfield actually called Helmsback less than two hours after the flight 305 landed in Reno so he could volunteer advice on standard skydiving practices and possible landing zones as well as information on local skydivers so just helping if he is db cooper he must be in the wilderness or somewhere by now hiking but he's calling so that ruled him out Additionally, Mayfield's daughter said that she called him at his home number the night of the Cooper hijacking and Mayfield answered and calmly discussed the incident and his phone call with the FBI. So, another person to corroborate. But in 2002, 2006, I mean, two amateur researchers named Daniel Dvorak and Matthew Myers proposed Mayfield as a suspect again, they suggested that Mayfield called Himmelsbach not to offer advice, but to establish an alibi. They also challenged the conclusion that Mayfield could not possibly have found a phone in time to call the FBI less than four hours after jumping into the wilderness at night. Mayfield himself denied any involvement to the case, and the FBI offered no comment beyond Himmelsbach's original statement that Mayfield was ruled out as a suspect early on. So Ted Mayfield had actually been killed in an aviation-related accident at his home in Sheridan, Oregon, because he was struck on his arm while hand-starting an air coupe. C-O-U-P-E, air coupe, prop, airplane, and he died of his injury at the scene. He was 79 years old. So FBI officials have actually stated that Mayfield was uh, fingered, I guess pointed at, <laughs> fingered just doesn't sound right, by at least six callers the night of the hijacking. But I, I as I said, he was taken out from the suspect list early on. Uh, and I just added this because it's kind of like also sad because death. So Ted Mayfield's daughter, Gwen, said that he died on Friday about 2.30pm. As I said, he was hand-starting a plane and he, oh my god, nearly severed his arm. Ugh. Gwen said that her father just wanted to listen to the engine. That's why he kind of like hand-started this. And because Ted at that time had been taking a blood-thinning medicine called warfarin, he bled out within minutes. 
and there were a lot of people around. The paramedics were on the line, but there wasn't anything anyone could do, so he died. And she also said that at the time of the hijacking, she was living in Bellevue at the time with her mother. And uh, when she saw the news of the hijacking, she said that she gotta call her dad and see what he thinks. And so she called her father and she said he was sitting right at his desk. He told me that the FBI had already called him looking for parachutes and that he had told them to call Earl Cossey. Then he said that he had to hang up because the FBI has just arrived and they wanted to go through his records. He sounded very casual the whole time. Now, does that sound like someone who had just hijacked an airplane? End quote. So what do you think about that? So now let's talk about the next suspect. I'm not gonna count anymore because I suppose I should have added numbers beside the names, but hey. <laughs> I didn't. So the next suspect is Richard McCoy Jr. He was alive on 1942 to 1974. So he's already also dead. So he was an army veteran who served two tours of duty in Vietnam. First as a demolition expert and later with the Green Berets as a helicopter pilot. So in his duty he won both the army commendation medal and distinguished flying cross so i don't know anything about the army especially the army not in my country but i suppose that is good right so after his military service he became a warrant officer in the utah national guard and he became a avid recreational skydiver and he wanted to become a utah state trooper so on april 7 1972 McCoy staged a copycat hijacking. Mm -hmm. So he went to a uh, United Airlines Denver Los Angeles 727 to San Francisco. He listed his name as T. Johnson and he boarded the plane without much, you know, problems. And uh, he has this paperweight that looks like a hand grenade. Grenade? Grenade? hand grenade and an unloaded handgun and using this kind of props for the hijacking he demanded four parachutes and five hundred thousand dollars so after the delivery of the money and parachutes at san francisco international airport he ordered the aircraft to go up into the sky once again so definitely a copycat and he parachuted out over Provo, Utah, leaving behind his handwritten hijacking instructions and his fingerprints on a magazine he had been reading. So not slick at all. So Robert Van Leperen, Leperen, Yeperen, just Robert, he is a Utah Highway Patrolman and he is a close friend of McCoy. And he recalls that McCoy kind of like talked about hijacking a plane in Cooper style. And McCoy showed up for a scheduled training hours after the parachuting from the hijacking that he did. And he did not show that anything was wrong. He did not show that he just did something illegal. Uh huh. McCoy's picture though was identified by a United passenger and he has a military record because he served in the army and this showed his handwriting that the FBI said matched the instructions in the handwritten letter that he had left. 
So less than 48 hours after the hijacking, McCoy was taken into custody without any struggle. A search of his house and yard quickly turned up all of the money but $30 was out of the ransom. He was charged with air piracy and he could receive a death sentence. So his family, friends, and neighbors were all absolutely like incredulous. They could not believe that McCoy could do this. He is seen as a quiet family man, father of two, and he's a devout Mormon. And McCoy teaches Sunday school until he got caught. So one of his students has said that he's a fine man. And all he ever talked about was sin, which is concerning, but uh, that's me. (laughs) And apparently, uh, a classmate at Brigham Young University where McCoy was there, majoring in law enforcement, uh, this classmate called him an organized crime freak because McCoy wanted to make this dent on the world by busting crime syndicates. So this is a 180 from what he wants because suddenly he's against the law here. And his mother was also very, she doesn't understand why McCoy would do this. And his wife also likes doesn't understand how her husband would do this and McCoy offered no explanation whatsoever. So after trial and conviction, he received a 45-year sentence and the charges against him quoted Diane Surdam, a flight stewardess. She said that the hijacker showed her hand grenade with the pin pulled, that's terrifying, and then handed her an envelope while the plane was over in Utah. 40 miles west of Grand Junction on the hijacking day. So the envelope that was given to her, she said it contained a bullet, a hand grenade pin, a flight plan to San Francisco, and a note reading only, grenade pin pulled, pistol. So two years later, McCoy escaped from Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary with several accomplices by crashing a garbage truck through the main gate. I don't know how that happened, but that's kind of like intense, man. They were tracked down three months. He was tracked down three months later in Virginia Beach, and he was killed in a shootout with FBI agents. So this time, there was a struggle. So Karen McCoy, (laughs) after years, she is the widow of Richard McCoy, revealed that, hey, you know the hijacking? Uh Uh-huh. I helped. I helped with it. She acknowledged that she was the one to buy the parachute and helped him prepare his disguise. She typed the instructions that he read to the airplane airline pilots and she was the one to drive him to the Salt Lake International Airport to begin the crime and she knows that he took a gun and grenade aboard the plane. So at 3 a.m. the next morning, She also drove with her husband to a field near Springville to pick up and hide the money, the $500,000. And yeah, she did say that. And under questioning from her own attorney, Karen blamed all of her involvement because she said she she had been severely physically and sexually abused when she was younger. And that's her explanation. So in the book, D.B. Cooper... The Real McCoy, which was written by parole officer Bernie Rhodes and former FBI agent Russell Kalam, 
1991, they said that they had identified McCoy as Cooper. So they said that the obvious similarities in the two hijackings, claims by McCoy's family that the tie and mother of Pearl Clip left on the plane belonged to McCoy, and McCoy's own refusal to admit or deny that he was Cooper. One of their, like, proof that McCoy indeed was Cooper was from an FBI agent who was the one to kill McCoy. So the FBI agent said, quote, When I shot Richard McCoy, I shot D.B. Cooper at the same time. End quote. So although there is no reasonable doubt that McCoy did commit the Denver hijacking, the FBI does not consider him a suspect in the case because of the mismatches in the age and description level of skydiving skill because he was well above what they think what they think D.B. Cooper is in and some credible credible evidence that McCoy was in Las Vegas on the day of the D.B. Cooper hijacking and the day after that he was at Utah having Thanksgiving dinner with his family. So that's it with McCoy. The next suspect. There's around one, two, three, four, five, five people left. So the next one is Sheridan Peterson. He served in the U.S. Marine Corps during World War II and was later employed as a technical editor at Boeing, based in Seattle. So investigators took an interest in him as a suspect soon after the skyjacking because of his experience as a smoke jumper. And he loves, loves, loves taking physical risks. He, <laughs> I forgot about this. He even reportedly was known to be experimenting with homemade bat wings. Uh-huh. And he was similar in appearance and in age to the Cooper description. He was approached by the media because he's a suspect of the case. And he often teased the media. He said in an interview in the 2007 issue of Smoke Jumper, a magazine published by the National Smoke Jumper Association, it said, quote, Actually, the FBI had good reason to suspect me. Friends and associates agreed that I was without a doubt, T.B. Cooper. There were too many circumstances involved for it to be a coincidence, end quote. So this circumstances, he also wrote, quote, at the time of the heist, I was 44 years old. That was the approximate age Cooper was assumed to have been, and I closely resembled sketches of the hijacker. But what was even more incriminating was a photo of me simulating a skydiving maneuver for Boeing's news sheet. I was wearing a suit and tie, the same sort of garb Cooper had worn, right down to the Oxford loafers. It was noted that skydivers don't ordinarily dress so formally. End quote. So Fryer and another agent questioned Peterson and took a DNA swab for him. So the FBI, uh, so the FBI had never really said anything about the sample they got from Peterson about the DNA and all of that. So we don't know what they think about the DNA. So entrepreneur Eric Ullis. He had spent years investigating the crime, said he was 98% convinced that Peterson was Cooper, but when Peterson was pressed by FBI agents, he said that he was in Nepal at the time of the skydiving, and he died in 2021, so just recently. So apparently, I found like this quote from the entrepreneur, Eric Ullis, to the Oregonian 
Oregonian. <laughs> so I said, quote, whether Sheridan Peterson was D.B. Cooper or not, may I suggest that he more than atoned for his life's failings? End quote. He said that because while he was investigating Peterson, he had found that Peterson cared for those less fortunate people and he helped establish freedom schools in the deep in the deep south in 1965 during the civil rights battles he also spent years in vietnam during the vietnam war assisting refugees later he would then witness and speak out against the tiananmen square massacre in 1989 and he was also very vocal about public policy until the very end so i suppose there's a good samaritan in him even if he is kind of like a suspect in a way i don't know i don't think he is <laughs> so next suspect is robert wesley rackstraw he was born on 1943 up to 2019 so he is also dead because this case has been here for so long, these suspects and everybody else that could be uh, linked to the case is old, you know, and so a lot of the suspects are now dead. So, yeah. So, Robert Rackstraw is a retired pilot, and he is also an ex-convict who served on an army helicopter crew and other units during the Vietnam War. So another Vietnam War veteran. So as a, apparently he is possibly a genius because he built a full-size glider while he was still a boy. A young boy. A full-size glider. He might be very proficient? Is that the term for it? For a young man? Because <laughs> I cannot build a glider when I was a young child. So Rockstraw became a Vietnam chopper pilot. He won a silver star and he was and he got two distinguished flying crosses in top secret operations with the CIA with the CIA and Green Berets. So he has a lot in his belt so he had training in high altitude parachuting explosives survival and spook stuff such as propaganda some quote-unquote mind control and deception because cia and green berets so he's definitely an elite in the army but apparently he was ousted from the army for quote-unquote conduct on becoming an officer end quote five minutes five minutes <laughs> five minutes before the hijacking what the fuck five months after the hijacking hi- uh, five months before the hijacking so that's why some people believe that he got some kind of grudge or something and he just did vent out his grudges using a hijacking for some reason so he came to the attention of the cooper task force in february 1978 after he was arrested in in iran and deported to the u.s to face explosive explosives possession explosive possession (laughs) explosives possession and check kiting charges i searched it up check kiting is kind of like a check fraud charge and he wrote about seventy-five thousand 
dollars worth of bad checks. Apparently, how he did this check fraud thingy is that there's this individual calling himself Baron Norman de Winter. Apparently, he he is a Swiss aristocrat, and he appeared in Astoria, Astoria, Oregon, and he de Winter, which surprise surprise is just Robert. <laughs> he fraud managed to take in residence in that place. Out of thousands of dollars, like fraud, he got he scammed them basically. So when things got too hot, like he was getting exposed that he is a fraud, he be- he just disappeared. He's just gone. So some victims of this Baron de Winter managed to ID this Baron as Rackstraw, and there's also some theories that. You know, Rockstraw went to Columbia River area, and the theory is that he is searching for the money. Like, you know, drop zones, he might drop some money if he is indeed D.B. Cooper. So when he got caught by the police, the cops served a warrant on him. On his, Oh, <laughs> the cops served a search warrant on his storage units in Stockton, and inside... They found 14 rifles, a lot, and 150 pounds of dynamite. And apparently this is nearly, it could nearly level a city block. So that much dynamite. So he got charged with explosives possession and fraud charges. While the authorities were searching for Cooper, Rockstraw was in fact in Calaveras County Jail. He was on trial, not for the explosives at this point, but for murdering his stepfather. So that's kind of like the alibi. He's doing another crime. (laughs) He's getting trialed for another crime. So his stepdad had been shot in the head and buried in a shallow grave on his property and Rockstraw is the one who is going to inherit the property if the stepfather is dead. And that's why he was, I guess, the authorities got a lot of evidence that he might have done it and so he's going to get tried for it. He was tried in March of 1978 in Calaveras County Judicial District Court and apparently he managed to hire a very good attorney and he showed his record in the war you know i am i am a veteran i got all of these medals he added this lawyer added like exaggerations about his deeds in the war and his lawyer said that oh rockstraw loved his stepdad so much but his stepdad apparently has a lot of enemies so a lot of other people that would kill his stepdad and the attorney did a good job because the jury acquitted him he they acquitted rackstraw so he managed to whether or not he did kill his stepdad we don't know but he did (laughs) got in jail because of the explosives and fraud charges he served a year for them and Apparently, he escaped twice. He managed to escape twice. Once in a stolen airplane. I don't know how how he did that. So he got charged for that, the stolen airplane thingy. And then several months later, 
he still got released on bail. So he, this is when he attempted to fake his own death. <laughs> and this is how he did it. He, uh, he flew an airplane. Uh-huh. And he radioed a false Mayday call and telling the people there in the, at the other side that he was going to bail out of a rented plane that he got over Monterey Bay. So around that time, after he quote-unquote bailed out, Rockstraw went missing from his ex-wife and children in Stockton and searchers found no wreckage of an airplane. They found no airplane wreck. I wonder why. <laughs> So the, his children actually didn't see him for a year, so he was missing. And when the doorbell rang and the ex-wife opened, they found like the FBI looking for Rackstraw. This is when the FBI has their eyes on Rackstraw. So Rackstraw, while he was on the run, he had changed his name to Eastman. He grew long hair and he... And a red dyed beard, so he dyed his hair. He he dyed his beard red, apparently. Police figured out his identity anyway, so that didn't work. So the police later arrested him in Fullerton on an additional charge of forging federal pilot certificates. The and the plane that he claimed to have, you know, crashed was found in a ditch. It no, it was found ditched, repainted in a nearby hangar. So the Cooper investigators noted that Rockstraw's physical resemblance kind of like it's kind of similar to Cooper's composite sketches. Although in 1971, Rockstraw isn't 40-something. He was only 28 years old and he has good military parachute training and he also has a criminal record. But apparently he was eventually eliminated as a, sus uh, as a suspect in 1979 because there is no direct evidence of his involvement that the FBI could find. So in 2016, so a lot of years after, Rockstraw re-emerged as, as a suspect in a history program and a book. So someone wrote about this on September 8, 2016. Thomas J. Gold. Thomas J. Colbert is the author of the book, and attorney Mark Zaid apparently filed a lawsuit to compel the FBI to release a Cooper case file under the Freedom of Information Act. So in 2017, Colbert and a group of volunteer investigators uncovered what they believe is a quote-unquote a decades-old decades parachute strap. And I don't know about this parachute strap because if it is indeed a parachute strap of Cooper, I think that it's going to be everywhere at this point. But I haven't really heard anything about this strap as I researched. Granted, I didn't like delve, delve, delve deep into everything. But since it's not everywhere, I don't think it's like the right strap. Or there's no definite proof that this is indeed D.B. Cooper's parachute strap. They found this strap at an undisclosed location in the Pacific in the in the Pacific Northwest. So this what this information was followed later in 2017 with a piece of foam, which Colbert and his team suspected as being part of Cooper's parachute backpack. 
So in January 2018, Tom and Donna Colbert reported that they had obtained a quote-unquote confession that was originally lit- written in December 1971 containing codes that matched three units that Rackstraw was a part of while in the army. So they're definitely zooming in into Rackstraw as D.B. Cooper. One of the flight attendants in the Boeing reportedly said that this he is a suspect but they did not find any similarities between photos of Rackstraw from the 1970s and how she how they recollected Cooper's appearance. Rackstraw's attorney even called the renewed allegations quote unquote the stupidest thing I've ever heard. End quote. And in People.com, Rockstraw himself said, quote, It's a lot of... <laughs> There's brackets and it said expletive. So maybe he said like it's a lot of bullshit. And they just didn't want to write it down. But it's a lot of whatever curse word that is. That is and they know it is. End quote. The FBI declined any comment. So they didn't say anything about this. Rockstraw, at the time that I have f- seen the article, I forgot what year it is. He was 72 at the time that article was written and he was still alive and living in San Diego. Apparently, he was a retired professor and he spends a lot of his time on his yacht named... <laughs> Guess what the yacht name's it? name is? The yacht is named... Poverty stuck. <laughs> Poverty sucks. So that's the name of his yacht. Poverty sucks. So Rockstraw even said that he is considering filing out a civil suit against the History Channel and the book's authors. Although he said he has not yet yet seen actually the program or read the book. He just I guess doesn't really want to see that, and he just doesn't want to be involved in this case. So Rock. Rockstraw stated in a 2017 phone interview that because of this program he lost over uh because of this program he lost his job because of this and I guess he was like so mad he told everybody that he was the hijacker but then this is like just a stunt he was he was just I guess he was fed up or whatever it is but He said he was the hijacker, but then he recanted this, saying that his admission is all a stunt, and he died in 2019. And that's all about Robert Rackstraw. Now, next, suspect, there's three more left, so not much anymore. So this uh, suspect is Walter R. Recca. He was uh, alive in 1933 up to 2014. He was a Michigan Michigan native, a military veteran, and a member of the Michigan Parachute Team. So he was proposed as a suspect. <laughs> he was proposed as a suspect by his friend Carl Lauren at a press conference on May 17, 2018, and Rekka apparently told Lauren, his friend, via a recorded phone call, that he was the hijacker. So apparently, allegedly, as Lauren said, Rekka gave him permission in a notarized letter to share the story after his death. He also allowed Lauren to tape their phone conversations about the crime over a six-week 
period in late 2008 and in over three hours of these of these recordings Rekha shared details about what had happened in the hijacking he also confessed this to his niece Lisa story so from Rekha's description of the terrain on his way to the drop zone Lauren concluded that he landed near Claire Ellum Washington I don't know how that is pronounced so I'm so sorry uh, Rekha described that he had this encounter with a dump truck driver at a roadside cafe after he landed, so it was safe. Lorian located Jeff Osiadax. O-S-I-A-D-A-C-Z. How do you pronounce that? Osiadax. So, <laughs> he was driving his dump truck near the place the night of November 24, 1971, and apparently he met a stranger at the Tinaway Junction Cafe just outside of town. So how Lauren managed to locate this man, it's kind of like amazing. <laughs> so the man, the person that the dump truck driver met, asked the dump truck driver on that night to give his friend directions to the cafe over the phone, kind of like, he wants to be picked up. I don't know why it's the dumb truck driver that's supposed to call, but he complied. So Lauren convinced Joe Koenig, who is a former member of the Michigan State Police, that Rekha is indeed D.B. Cooper. So Koenig, <laughs> I'll just call him Joe. So Joe published a book on this titled Getting the Truth, I Am D.B. Cooper. Lauren also published a book of his own named D.B. Cooper and Me, A Criminal, A Spy, My Best Friend. So, in an interview with the Washington Post, Lauren said that he kind of like suspected that his friend is involved because he said, quote, it feels like something he would do. When Rekha finally acknowledged it to him, he said that he wasn't surprised at all. So, one problem though, Rekha lived in Oscoda, Michigan, died in 2014 at the age of 80, so he could not be contacted whatsoever. A second problem, the FBI at this time already closed their Cooper investigation. And third problem, Lauren and his publisher, Principia Media, never really told their theories with the FBI. So no communication there. Fourth is that the FBI said that they would reopen the case only and only if someone found items that are related to the hijackers' parachutes or money, like concrete evidence that, oh, this is like something worth reopening the case. But Lorian doesn't have any of that. So there is no like definite way to say that, hey, Rekha is indeed D.B. Cooper because a confession doesn't really, you know, it's not heavy at all. You could, I could say right now that, hey, I was D.B. Cooper. I was not alive <laughs> in 1972 or 1971. Anyway, in the 70s, but I am D.B. Cooper. I could do that. So there's no weight to that. So these claims have aroused skepticism because, of course, this doesn't look like there's a lot of credibility in it. So, also the place where he said he has landed is north and east 
a flight 305's known flight path, and this is more than 150 miles north of the drop zone that is assumed by most of the analysis. And this is even further from Tina Bar, where they got some of the ransom money. Sareka was a military paratrooper and private skydiver with hundreds and hundreds of jumps in his credit, and this is as I've said in other suspects, this is a contradiction to what the FBI thinks is an amateur skydiver at best. Also, Rekka did not resemble the composite portrait that the FBI got, so that's another problem with that. So in response to the allegations against Rekka, the FBI said that it would be inappropriate to comment on this and that they have no evidence to date that could prove like, yeah, this is like a good suspect for the case. Lauren and the, his publisher say they have evidence that supports Rekka's claims. These claims that they say they had includes documents that show that uh, Rekka managed to spend much of the $200,000 that D.P. Cooper got and the audio files, of course. But that's about it for that. So there's not much weight into it, in my opinion, of course. It, de- it, it depends on you what you feel with this, but like the FBI, I do want like concrete evidence, you know. So the next suspect, which is the second to the last, is William J. Smith. So in November 2018, the Oregonian published an article proposing that William J. Smith, who was alive in 1928 up to 2018, that he is D.B. Cooper, or he is a good suspect for the case. So the article was based on a research conducted by an army data analyst who uh, sent his findings to the FBI in mid 2018 so it's recent so this data analyst wants to remain anonymous for now he is a u.s army officer with a security clearance and he has a solid professional reputation and he wants to keep it that way apparently he is worried that his reputation is going to get muddied by this because he doesn't want to think that he is one of those what he calls cooperites apparently people that are very uh, it's attached to amateur investigators, so he doesn't want his reputation to be one of those, apparently. <laughs> so he wants to be anonymous for now. So over the summer, he organized all of his research and sent it off to FBI. And he wrote to the FBI, I am an analyst, and in my professional opinion, there are too many connections to be simply a coincidence. Our suspect, Smith, is a New Jersey native, and he is also a World War II veteran. So after high school, he enlisted in the Navy, and he volunteered for combat aircrew training. So after his discharge, he worked for the Lehigh Valley Railroad, and he was affected by the Penn Central Transportation Company bankruptcy in 1970, and this is the largest bankruptcy in U.S. history at that time. His pension was lost, and this created a grudge against the corporate establishment and transportation field. And because his pension is gone, and he was affected by, as I suppose, kind of like the Great Depression at that time, he needed money. He needs it, like, 
urgently. He was 43 at the time of the hijacking, so that fits the uh, profile. And in Smith's high school yearbook, a list of alumni killed in World War II lists an Ira Daniel Cooper, and he possibly used this to for like the pseudonym. You know, he thought he thought that I might just use this name for myself. So the anonymous data analysis started his research because he stumbled upon this book called D.B. Cooper: What Really Happened by the late author Max Gunther. So Gunther wrote that he was contacted in 1972. This is why he wrote his book. He was contacted in 1972 by a man who claimed to be D.B. Cooper. So this uh, man though suddenly cut off his communication and the author just decided that ah, maybe it's a fluke, maybe it's a fraud. So he just moved on with his life. A decade later though, a woman calling herself Clara got in touch with him and insisted that she was the widow of Dan Leclerc. And Dan Leclerc, the one that contacted Gunther and said that he was D.B. Cooper. So this book that Gunther made, D.B. Cooper, What Really Happened, is largely dismissed by critics and Cooper fanatics when it came out in 1985. Shoy, oh my god, there's a writer in the Los Angeles Times and they called it, quote, a dumb book that falls somewhere in between non-fiction and speculation, depending on what the reader cares to believe, end quote. So this book really doesn't have a good reputation <laughs> at all. You could see that. And... I didn't add it here as to why it was like dismissed, but apparently there's like sudden romance in the book. I don't know. It didn't feel like a non-fiction book to a lot of people, and that's why it it was like dismissed. Like it may it's maybe just you might enjoy reading it, but thinking of it as fact, not a lot of people or critics, critics or fanatics of this case really just believes this book as a non-fiction book. So Gunther even interviewed Himmelsbach while he was researching his book. And more than 30 years later, Himmelsbach, who led the Cooper investigation for almost a decade, he rejects the book. So the book, definitely. <laughs> even Himmelsbach rejected it. So not good. Himmelsbach told the Oregonian about this book, quote, I think Gunther was highly unprofessional. I would be leery of anything reported by him. I wouldn't count on anything he wrote. End good. So not good. Not good at all. But this data analyst that we have, our researcher, saw something in this, in this book. Gunther might have played with the truth, put some embellishments on it, turning a real-life crime mystery into some kind of unreal romance so what the fuck happened in that book now i'm curious so but the data analyst was convinced that someone did contact gunther in 1972 and he wanted to find out who it was because may this may be the truth and the uh, widow might not be the one that is the truth so using the name dan leclerc that this uh first contactor used as a name our data analyst tracked 
a lot of breadcrumbs. I don't know how he did it, but he managed to track it down to a very real man named Dan Clare. And he is a World War II Army veteran who died in 1990. While researching, he kind of like thought, oh, I might be onto something here. He even contacted uh, Gunther's children, hoping to get a hold of his research notes about Dan Leclerc, but they did not respond to his letters at all. So continuing the research, the data analysis eventually analyst analysis the data analyst eventually determined that Dan Clare probably was not TB Cooper but the one who is most likely to be is his friend and co-worker a native of New Jersey by the name of William J Smith who died in January at the age of 89 I don't know what this article is 2018 i suppose yeah so he already died at age 89 and clarence smith worked together at penn central transportation and one of its predecessors and for a while they were both yardies at the oak island rail yard in network 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 so they're definitely friends at this point. I don't know, maybe co-workers? But they, it looks like they were friends. It appears they bonded in the 1980s as while Penn Central was struggling to adapt to the changing economy. So the analysts claim that Smith has this naval aviation experience and this would have given him knowledge of planes and parachutes and his railroad experience would have helped him find railroad tracks and hop on a train to escape the area after landing. So William J. Smith served in the Navy and he has long experience in the railroad business. I think it's possible for them to successfully parachute from a low-flying jetliner, find railroad tracks when they, once they went underground, and then they would hop on a freight train back to the East Coast. Our data analysts looking over 1971 Railroad Atlas, the hijacked plane's flight path, and the D.B. Cooper's jump zone, he determined that no matter where D.B. Cooper landed, he would have been no more than 5 to 7 miles from railroad tracks. So all of this came together and our data analyst found a 1980s photograph of Smith on a website devoted to the defunct Lehigh Valley Railroad and he was surprised. He has a resemblance to D.B. Cooper and this was remarkable. So his theory is getting thicker and thicker. More and more sees in that thick. Uh, our data analyst theorizes that Smith probably used another identity when he corresponded with Gunther in 1972 and his wife, Dolores, took over communication a decade later when Smith decided once again that he is going to tell his tale. So he believes Smith and Claire may have been in on the skyjacking together because Claire, who spent his career in a kind of like low-level job, retired in 1973 when he was only 54 years old. So when, where, kind of like, if it's only a low-level, like, not that much paying kind of job, you retired fairly early, like, he thinks he has the money to retire that early. Then there's this theory about the grudge that the Skyjacker has 
because Debbie Cooper did say that he has a grudge, but not on the airline, just a grudge. And this kind of like would work because they have a grudge the bankruptcy, the economy at that time, so they have that grudge over that because thousands of workers lost their job when Penn Central went into bankruptcy and they had a grudge because of that. So not to their uh, airline why can't I talk? Not to the airline itself, but maybe a grudge on something else. So the data analyst then is convinced that Smith and Claire were mad at the corporate establishment in the USA and they want to do something about it. So according to the analyst, aluminum spiral chips were found on the clip-on tie and this would have come from a locomotive maintenance facility. And Smith's information about the Seattle area may have come from his close friend, Dan Clare. And that's why he knows, like, from above, this is Tacoma, this is this, kind of like that. The FBI, though, said that uh, it's a similar thing with the previous suspect that they think it is inappropriate to comment on tips related to Smith. So I suppose they don't have the tip. I suppose didn't like pass the test of is this enough for them to reopen the case Uh uh-huh so that's it for William J Smith and now for the last suspect it's Dwayne L Weber so Dwayne L Weber born on 1924 and lived until 1995 is another World War II army veteran who served time in at least six prisons so who from 1945 to 1968 for burglary and forgery he was proposed as as a suspect by his widow based primarily because of his deathbed confession three days before he died in 1995 weber told his wife joe i am dan cooper So he was hospitalized in Florida with a kidney disease and that's when he motioned his wife to come closer. Because after 17 years of them being married together, there was something that she needed to know. So he says to Joe, quote, come here, come closer. He says, I have a secret to tell you. Joe said, what? He said, I am Dan Cooper. So at that time, the name kind of like meant nothing to her. But months later, a friend told her, I guess she told this to her friend like, guess what my husband told me before he died. And her friend told her that, hey, this is the hijacking. And that's what prompted her to look at their local library to to research D.B. Cooper. And she found Max Gunther's book. Hey, Gunther is here again. And she discovered that there are notations in the margins. And these notations were in her husband's handwriting. So Joe recalled that one time Dwayne had a nightmare and he kind of like sleep talked through this nightmare and he said, quote, leaving fingerprints on a plane. So interesting. And he also has this old knee injury he claimed he got from jumping out of a plane. And Joe says that after like seeing and researching all of this, she said that she can't really just walk away from him. Because he has this old Northwest airline ticket. Why does he still has that? And why would he take her to a place where the event for eventually the money was found? So I guess 
he brought her to Tina Bar or somewhere close to that, she thinks that there are too many pieces of the puzzle like just appearing and she can't just look away from it because she herself is completely puzzled by what she is suddenly discovering about her husband. So, looking at her husband as well, he drank bourbon, he likes smoking, and other circumstantial evidence included a 1979 trip to Seattle and the Columbia River. So, Himmel's back has a comment about Weber as well. He said, quote, Weber does fit the physical description and does have the criminal background that I have always felt was associated with the case. But... He did not believe that Weber was Cooper. The FBI also eliminated him as a suspect in July 1998 when his fingerprints did not match any of those that were got from the hijacked plane. And there's no other direct evidence that could be found to like link him to the case. So the FBI said that because of this, they could not look at him as a suspect. He was eliminated because of that. And that is about all of the suspects that I have looked into. <laughs> I'm pretty sure there's a lot more, but it's already long enough, guys. <laughs> so let's go to the aftermath of this hijacking. So of course, of course, there's gonna be copycats. Because Cooper, hi- Cooper's hijacking was, if he lived, it's a success because... The authorities still don't know where he is, who he is, so a lot of people want to imitate this and get money out of it. And these copycat hijackings happened mostly during 1972, and there's a lot really of people. There's 15 hijackings, all unsuccessful, (laughs) and they were attempted in 1972 because uh, the airline, the airplane, the airport kind of like upped their security after the hijacking in 1972 so these copycat hijackings or attempted and attempted hijackings dropped dramatically and they think that oh hijackers probably stopped now until july 11 1980 when suddenly Somebody tried to do a copycat one once again and this is glenn k trip and he took Northwest Flight 606 at Seattle Tacoma Airport. He demanded $600,000, two parachutes, and the assassination of his boss. And I say, I say to that, whoa, what the fuck? <laughs> Are you asking the government or, I don't know, the airport company to assassinate his boss? Are you asking them? What the fuck? So, he didn't even manage to get off the plane at all because there's a quick-thinking flight attendant that secretly drugged his beverage with Valium so he got loopy as fuck. And after a 10-hour standoff, (gasps) I forgot about this, his demands got reduced so much that at the end of it, he just demanded three cheeseburgers and a vehicle in which he could escape. <laughs> Sorry, it's funny as... Uh, <clears throat> so he was caught, and you'd think that's it, you know? Because what the fuck? He then would later attempt to hijack, to hijack 
the same Northwest flight on January 21, 1983, and this time he demanded to be flown to Afghanistan. <sighs> oh, now it's sad. So when the plane landed in Portland, he was then shot and killed by FBI agents. That's sad, but you know, the trip to this is kind of like funny. So yeah. So as I've said, the airport security definitely upped up their security and they began requiring airlines to search all passengers and their bags. And apparently this kind of like triggered multiple lawsuits saying that these kind of like searches violated Fourth Amendment protections against search and seizure. So the federal courts ruled that searching the luggage were acceptable when it is applied universally and only limited to search for like weapons and explosives. And because of that, only two hijackings were attempted at 1973 and sadly they were both done by psychiatric patients. So one hijacker, Samuel Samuel Bike, Bick, this, I suppose he's one of the psychiatric patients. He intended to crash the airliner into the White House to kill President Nixon. So definitely like... He has a problem going through. So, aside from the uh, security, the aircrafts, the airplanes themselves have some modifications. So, the airplanes are then, the FAA then require that the exterior of all Boeing 727 aircrafts get this spring-loaded device. It was later dubbed the Cooper Vane. And this prevents lowering the air, air stair during the flight. And because of the direct result of the hijacking, because, you know, the captain and the flight attendant couldn't see through their cockpit doors. Because of this, there are now peepholes in the cockpit doors. This could enable the cockpit crew to observe the passengers without having to open it. In my research, I thought, oh, hey, I'm done. But then I saw this, and it kind of like is interesting. It is the death of Earl J. Causey. So in April 23, 2013, Earl J. Causey is the owner of the skydiving school that gave the four parachutes that were given to Cooper. He was found dead in his house in Woodenville, a suburb of Seattle. Over the decades... Pieces of parachutes were sometimes discovered in the area of Cooper's jump. The FBI went to him for help. Is this the parachute that you gave him? No? Okay. So his death was ruled a homicide due to blunt force trauma in the head. And apparently he died in April 23. And this is several days before he was found at his home in the block of NE 192nd Street. Cosi's daughter realized that her father in April 26 hadn't contacted her at all. She hadn't heard from him at all. And so she went there, check up on him, and she found him dead. That's so sad. She found him dead in the home. And then the authorities were called at about 5.30 p.m. that day. So he died on April 23, but he was found on April 26. So the person that killed him remains unknown. 
So it's an unsolved case. So King County Sheriff Sergeant Cindy West said that she has had many calls asking if this case is related to the D.B. Cooper case. Maybe like, you know, if D.B. Cooper is alive, maybe he, I don't know. Because he is connected in a way, but not like direct, direct, direct. He is connected to the D.B. Cooper case in a way. So a lot of like these D.B. Cooper fanatics or just some interested people went and asked, is this connected to the case? And Cindy said that they have no information that could lead them to believe that this is related to the Cooper case at all. Woodenville officials later announced that this is just a burglary gone very, very wrong. And that's like, whenever I hear of those crimes, like a burglar just came in the house and it got so wrong and somebody died, it makes me feel like just so sad. I don't know, it feels like it's just, it's just so sudden in a way, like, oh, fuck. Anyway, death and kind of like crimes. It's sad. It's always sad. So the very last notes that I have is that D.P. Cooper definitely achieved this kind of like cult status because his hijacking is definitely gutsy. It's ris- it's risky. It's gutsy. It's bold. And the way that he is very calm, you know, he's very calm through it. And he also became a subject of a song, a movie. Apparently, the ending of this movie is movies that he got clean away with the money, so he lived. Uh, there's a lot of t-shirts and even events such as D.B. Cooper bowling tournaments. Okay, so the town of Ariel, which is once thought to be his drop zone, still holds an annual D.B. Cooper celebration. There is a restaurant in Salt Lake City calling itself D.B. Cooper's. And they host a jump night party to give away either a round trip ticket to Seattle or just some parachuting lessons. So they definitely, definitely leaned on this, which I could not really blame them, you know. This could give them the moolah that they need. So, sure. So, yeah. At last. You know, when I look at my Google Docs and I'm researching this case, I'm like amazed. It's around... How long? 35 pages. So of course, there's also link for references and, you know, I try to make my notes organized, but 35 pages in Google Docs. And it's in font size 11. (laughs) That's a lot. I'm like, I'm trying my very best to hold myself back because rabbit hole over rabbit hole over rabbit hole, just a lot of them I could fall through and I try my best not to, you know, because we're... I I intend to have this podcast uh, covering multiple cases and not just one. (laughs) I guess you could say that. Uh And that's about it. The D.P. Cooper case part 2, that's mostly about the suspects, is now done. I hope you found this uh, episode fascinating, interesting, something that you like to listen through, I suppose. Or at the very least, I hope I provided you company through whatever it is that you're doing. Maybe you're like cleaning, working, doing something. Uh, now that the main topic of this episode is done, let's talk about the hint for the next one. Actually, I haven't thought through quite yet what it is, but I'm thinking that's 
a Korean cannibal. Yeah, I think it was. But it's an infamous case there. I'm not quite sure if that is like the case that I'm going to push through, but it's a case that's definitely calling for me. And so I would see if I could research a lot about it and hopefully get enough information that I could cover it in a episode. And yeah, now, if you have any stories that you want to share in this podcast, anything that had happened to you, true crime, paranormal, any urban legends, or anything interesting, basically, that you want to share, I could read them in this podcast. Just say if you want your name to be called out or you want to be anonymous, you could email me at macabramblings at gmail.com. You could also contact me at Instagram and Twitter. Instagram is macabramblings podcast and on Twitter it's at macarambles which is M-A-C-A rambles. And in those you could DM me, contact me, talk to me, tell me if you have, you know, any cases that you want me to cover. I would definitely list them down and look through them and I might just cover them in the next episodes, you know. So yeah, make sure that you always eat good food, like good nutritious food, take care of yourself as well, drink, drink, drink water. It's important to be hydrated, very important. And you know, Take like 15 minutes for yourself every day. Maybe uh, stand up, stretch, meditate. Anything that you, that could keep you relaxed. And just like a good like quick, quick, quick reset for the day. That's very also important, you know. I hope you stay spooky, everybody. And of course, of course, of course, stay safe. Bye-bye.